All right, well, good morning. Hope you're all doing well. Um, we are continuing on in our series through Hebrews. Uh, today we're in Hebrews 9. Uh, and so if uh, you can find it in your worship folder, uh, also it should be up on the screens. Uh, I will read through the passage and you can follow along and then uh, we'll pray and we'll get started. So this is the word of the Lord. Hebrews 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstands and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, which I find ironic because it felt very detailed. Uh, Verse six. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer uh, sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, but from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, 
but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray with me as we begin? Father God, we ask today, we ask today that you would help us to see Jesus, that you would help us to hear Jesus. And God, for each person in here, whatever they're bringing in to this week, uh, whatever they're bringing in uh, to this room, that you would help us to trust and love Jesus more and more. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, at first glance of this passage, which is a long passage, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was uh, you can't escape the religious tone of it. There is religion all through this, this, this passage. And by religion, I mean there's rituals and there's talk of tabernacles and, and priests entering. Uh, and I think it's fascinating just to think about for a little bit, what is the main point of religion? Because this is a, a, a widely um, misunderstood uh, idea but also an extremely important idea. If we misunderstand what religion is all about, uh, we're going to be off base. And one of the, um, I saw recently, I started watching recently a show on NBC called The Good Place. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. Uh, it's with uh, Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. And it's a brand new show. It's about eight episodes in. And it's a fascinating premise. And I think it gets to our culture's understanding of what religion ultimately is all about. And in the show, uh, the main character, Eleanor Shellstrup, uh, she wakes up and is informed that she has died uh, and that she is now into the next phase of her existence. It's a comedy, so it's not quite as you know, serious as that made it sound. But uh, she's kind of informed, by the way, you're dead, uh, and now you've entered into the good place. And so what they explain is that there is a good place and that there is a bad place. And, and they kind of joke that every religion got things about 5% right, um, and which I think shows their kind of misunderstanding of religion a little bit. But uh, the idea, the premise of the show is that um, these people, whoever they are, uh, where you go when you die, they have been watching you. And they have been watching everything you do and everything that you do that's altruistic, that's selfless, that's good, they give you kind of positive points for. And everything you do that's selfish and bad, you lose points for. So for instance, uh, an example of a good thing would be, uh, according to the show, uh, never bringing up veganism unasked. You know, you're not, you're not trying to, that was supposed to be funny. Okay. Um, or uh, not ruining the opera with boorish behavior. You know, these important things. But there's also other things like ending slavery or ending poverty or helping uh, your neighbor. There's also bad things like um, Ted Danson is kind of the guy who oversees the good place. And he says, you know, if you ever thought when you're in traffic and you see that emergency lane kind of thing and you thought no one's watching, I'll just, you know, zip around it. He's like, we were. And it, it, it docked your points down. Um, and the whole idea of the good place is that the good place is only for the best people. 
There, there, it is only for the absolute cream of the crop. There is no medium place. There's no, you know, lesser. It's either the good place for the select few who are truly good people. And everyone else goes to the bad place. And the challenge or the premise of the show is that Eleanor Shellstrip finds herself in the good place, but she is not a good person. And what you find out is, Apparently, someone else named Eleanor Shellstrup died at the exact same time, and through a cosmic slip-up, uh, she ended up in a good place, even though she is far from a good person. And so the whole show is her realizing, I'm in the good place, I'm not a good person, now I've got to get better so I can stay here. If anyone finds out my secret, if anyone finds out what I've done, if anyone finds out the truth about me... Then, then I will be sent out of the, the good place to the bad place. So I have to try to become good. And the whole show is about how people try to become good. And I think it's fascinating because I think we, uh, in these circles, probably run into the same thing. Where we view our lives, maybe we, maybe we don't even say it's about heaven or not. But maybe we do view our lives that we're trying to go get to a place in our life that's a good place. We're trying to get to a place in our life where we feel at peace, where we feel at rest. And the whole idea is I have to get better to get there. I have to work. I have to improve. I have to stop doing some things. I have to start doing some other things in order to get to the good place. And this, uh, this it's with us all the time. In fact, uh, I grew up um, watching a show called VeggieTales. I don't know if anyone here has ever heard of VeggieTales. Everyone has. Um, and... Uh, I'm not going to try, you know, I don't want to knock VeggieTales, but uh, it's moralism. Uh, and uh, I grew up, that was a joke too, but um, I grew up, you know, and the whole point of VeggieTales was often to take these Bible stories and kind of say like, here's the principle, you know, what we have learned applies to, you know, that little song, never mind. Um, and it would show, it would, the whole point was to give you these principles in order for you to kind of understand what the Bible, for kids to understand what the Bible's saying. And the problem is, is that uh, eventually you start missing the point of what the Bible's saying. In fact, Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, about four years ago, um, in an interview with World Magazine, basically repented of what he called, uh, like, teaching kids moralism. He said this, I looked back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey, kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey, kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. And that was such a huge shift for me from the American Christian ideal. We, today, American Christians, are drinking a cocktail that's a mix of the Protestant work ethic, Protestant work ethic being kind of this self-made, I can do it, whatever it is I need to do, I can will myself to get there, this uh, Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so God will make all your dreams come true. I love what he said. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so that God will make your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God. And I think what he's saying there, it at least strikes home for me because my life, kind of my narrative that I constantly kind of live in is, 
There are some things in my life that I, if I start getting them better, if I start working harder, then God will, you know, he'll get me to where I'm going. But at the end of the day, it's up to me. I recognize that there is a good place that I want to get to, and it's my job to make myself ready for it. So I want to look at this passage, three different things uh, that kind of walk us through what like the biblical religion is really all about, what true religion is all about. And the first thing that you have to start with in order to have good, like solid, actual, you know, biblical faith and religion is the holiness of God. That the holiness of God is the starting point for any religious experience or interaction. And this is seen in this passage through the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is, is all throughout uh, these, these verses. And the tabernacle was God's dwelling place among Israel. And so what would happen as they were wandering through the wilderness, God went with them, which is a fascinating idea. And actually, we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks during Advent that I'm really excited about. But God would go with them. And at not, at, at whenever they would make camp, uh, the tribes of Israel would camp around and the tabernacle would be at the very center of all the tribes. And the tabernacle basically was a giant rectangular, you know, compound. And on the outside were these giant white linen walls. And so if you're just kind of an Israelite running around, uh, maybe running around or doing whatever you do, uh, you would constantly be seeing this, this kind of pure white structure at the very heart of your community. And those white walls were meant to show that there, this is a sacred place. This is a pure place. That uh, this the verse talks about the, that this was an earthly place of holiness. This was a place where God had decided to dwell amongst his people. And so inside that outer complex, there is another tent at the kind of center of it. And in that tent, it was kind of like blue curtain with uh, um, animal skins and stuff. Uh, inside that tent, there were two rooms. Uh, the first room is where the priest would go daily. So if you're just kind of a regular Israelite, you would never even go your whole life. You would never even go into that room. Only the priests would go in there and they would go in there daily. And then there was a second room that no one went in except the high priest. And he only went once a year. And that was called the most holy place. And, and verse nine, one through three, it says, uh, sorry, chapter 9, 1 through 3 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And so God's dwelling place was a source of protection. It was a reminder that God is with them. But it was also a reminder is that there is a separation between us, even God's chosen people, between us and him. There is a reminder that there is a world of difference between sinners and the good place where God is. In Isaiah 6, uh, the prophet Isaiah encounters the holiness of God. And uh, he kind of gets caught up into the very throne room of God. And when he's there, he's not like, you know, this is really cool. Like, he's not kind of like, this is, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to tweet this, Instagram, whatever's happening. No, his, his reaction, he suddenly sees the, the great, huge, infinite gap between himself and what he's experiencing. He says this, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when we encounter God's holiness, we realize there are no good people. When we encounter God's holiness, we're suddenly struck with there is a big 
gap, a separation between us and him. In fact, the only person who could go was the high priest and he couldn't even go. And he's like, you know, if you're just living down, you know, in Israel, you would think he's probably the best guy. You know, it wasn't always the case historically, but if there was anyone who was like really, really good, it was the high priest. And he couldn't even go into the most holy place where God's presence really dwelt without first sacrificing for his own sins and the sins of his family. Uh, As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of uh, in college, um, I uh, was home on Thanksgiving break and some of my friends at University of Georgia, I grew up in Atlanta. So some of my friends at University of Georgia wanted to go to the Georgia, Georgia Tech game. Uh, And so Athens is about 45 minutes from where I lived. And uh, they kind of asked me like, hey, do you want to go? And I was like, I don't don't think I have a ticket. And they were like, you can buy a student ticket really cheap. So I I was like, okay, that sounds good. And uh, so I bought a student ticket. And the only catch with a student ticket back then um, was you had to be a student, <laughs> and, and I wasn't. So, um, but I, I got the student ticket, and my friends who were there, who were students, they, were, they said, like, oh, people do this all the time. What we'll do is we'll have a friend of ours who's not going to the game. Uh, we'll, we'll let you use their student ID to get in. Pure deception, I know, but it's, we're going to move on. Uh, and so I think, I think okay, like, I can, I can try to make this work. Um, so I get there and kind of hang out with my friends. We go to the game. They give me, and he goes, oh, here's your ID. And I look, and the ID belongs to a mutual friend of ours who um, was of Persian descent. And his name, both first and last, were Persian. And I just thought, I don't think I look like this name. That, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how this is going to fly, guys. And they're like, oh, it'll be totally fine. They don't, they don't even care. So, okay, here we go. So I go, uh, we, we get to the game, and uh, we're walking in. They all walk ahead of me. I give them my ticket. They say, cool. Then you have to give your ID to the person. And I'll never forget, give him my ID to the person. And he looks at it, looks up at me. He's like, this is not you. And I, and I was, you know, I don't, I don't even know what I probably just said. Like, don't say anything. Just be quiet. I don't know. Uh, and he, and he was like, he gave me a little test. He was like, okay, um, what's your middle name? And I thought, uh, I, and, and in a moment, uh, I don't know why I'd said this, um, but I just had, I quit, I think really quickly on my feet. And in this moment, I just said, Lane, because that's my middle name. Uh, I don't know if it's that guy's middle name, but. He asked my middle name, and he looked at him, no, no, this is not. And I don't know if I thought, maybe if I'm honest, he'll just let me in. You know, like, yes, I've been deceitful so far, but I've, I've repented. You know, let me in. Uh, didn't work. And as, I remember as I was walking away from the game uh, and uh, kind of knowing all of my friends had just gone in, I just wasted whatever money I spent on that student ticket. And I'm walking away, and Georgia that year got up to a really big lead on Georgia Tech. So as I'm walking away... Uh, really early on, they started scoring. And so just the crowd was going crazy. And I just remember walking away going, hearing the crowd cheering, knowing my friends in there and knowing I'm all alone. It's really sad. Uh, and knowing uh, that the place that I wanted to be, the place where everyone was having fun, the place, the place where I had longed to get, I was cut off from. That there was, a, like, there was no way I could get in there. And, and it's kind of a silly example, but I think there's plenty of times in our lives where there are things we encounter or, or, or things that we desire that we begin to see because of our own uh, sin, because of who we are, because we're weak, uh, because we are finite creatures. We begin to see we will never get there. 
Maybe it's an image of a perfect marriage that you think, man, I would just, that's where I want to be someday. And yet you keep seeing there's this wide gap between where you guys are and where you want to be. Maybe it's your ideal of a perfect, being a perfect parent. But regardless, the tabernacle showed us the holiness of God and, and therefore showed us our sin and, and therefore let us know that there is a world of separation between you and the good place where God is. There is a infinite separation. And so that leaves us kind of outside of the camp, so to speak. And so uh, what is life like outside the camp? This is my second point uh, that, that this passage shows that uh, kind of the um, typical life, life of the worshiper was one whose conscience was troubled and one who could not have their conscience purified, who could not have their conscience uh, kind of redeemed or, or, or set at peace. In Hebrews 9, verse 9 through 10, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. And so all of these religious rituals were designed to point to the sacrifice that would perfect our conscience, but none of them did at the time. And I think we all know what it's like to live uh, with a conscience uh, that, is, that is grating on us. Uh, just a week ago, we celebrated the 499th birthday of um, the uh, Reformation. And uh, Martin Luther was the one who kind of kicked it off on Halloween, uh, posted the 95, it wasn't Halloween then, but posted the 95 theses. Uh, and he was a man who uh, really understood what it's like to live uh, with a conscience that was um, uh, attacking him almost. Uh, he, he, he saw in Paul, uh, Romans 2, Paul talks about uh, that, Romans 2.15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while the conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the conscience was a witness to the law that's written on our hearts, the holy and just law that God as a holy God has given us. Our conscience is the one who tells us where we stand before that law. Martin Luther said, for the conscience is not the power of acting, but the power of judging. So you have a will that chooses things and does things. The conscience is not the will. The conscience is the voice that comes along behind the will. And sometimes in front of it, sometimes it warns you. Uh, But I think the most profound experiences we have with the conscience are it coming alongside and going, did you see what you just did? This, This accusing voice. He says it's proper work, Luther says, it's proper work, as Paul says in Romans 2, is to accuse or excuse, to cause one to stand accused or absolved, terrified or secure. Its purpose is not to do, but to speak about what has been done and what should have been done. And this judgment makes us stand accused or saved before God. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian, said, What Luther says is excellent. One thing need, the one thing needful and the sole explanation that this whole doctrine of the atonement and in the main all Christianity and so all of Christianity comes down must be traced back to the struggle of the anguished conscience. Remove the anguished conscience and you may as well close the churches and turn them into dance halls. The anguished conscience understands Christianity. So the anguished conscience is the voice of accusation, of, of demand, the, the ought 
that plays in your head of what you should have done, what you should, who you should be. It's this great either or. There's no gray in it. It's black and it's white. It's saying this is what the law demands and this is what you've done. You've either murdered or you haven't. You've either lied or you haven't. You've either loved God purely or you haven't. And if you haven't, which we all haven't, your conscience uh, as Luther would talk about, terrorizes you. It, it, it continually reminds you of your sin. But there are kind of less obvious uh, either-ors in our lives. We hear voices all the time that you're a failure. We hear voices all the time uh, that you're either successful or you're not, and there's no in-between. And so we hear voices all the time saying you are not a success. We hear voices all the time, you're, you're, not, uh, you're either skinny or you're not. You're either loved or you're not. You're either beautiful or you're not. And we constantly hear these voices saying, you're, you're a failure. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not worthy enough. And this is what it's like to live as a human being. And I think we all get this. I think we all know what it's like to live with a voice in our head that continually accuses us. And it's this need and this uh, guilty conscience, this, this thing that's almost attacking us, that we are to bring to God. And so we have the holiness of God in the tabernacle that shows us just what the standard is. And we have a conscience that accuses us for not living up to it. And the third thing is that Christianity has a mediator. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That Christianity offers a go-between. Between the worshiper with a guilty conscience that's accusing them and a holy God. And what we need is a priest who could go to where God is. A priest who could go to where God is with a clean conscience with no sense of I have to make atonement for myself. A priest who could go into the holy place of God on our behalf. And this passage continually reminds us that this is done only by blood. And Hebrews 9, 24 says, without blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. See, one of the things that's missing throughout um, the, the show, The Good Place, is uh, she's continually reminded of all of the bad things she did in her life. But there is no place uh, for forgiveness, that everything that everything that whenever she's reminded of the bad things she's done, it, it, it comes down to I've got to change. I've got to change. I've got to change. And I think there are plenty of people in this room, myself being one of them, who experience the same thing. We hear all of the things we've done. Maybe it's 10, 20 years ago. We hear all the things that we are or are not. And we think I have got to change. And maybe what we're looking for is a love that's not contingent on us changing. And that love only comes through sacrifice and blood. Uh, Brene Brown is a, a popular um, shame researcher, psychologist, and she talked about when she kind of decided to come back to church. Uh, and um, she, she kind of talks in this little interview about how she was looking for a church uh, that didn't get into all the Jesus stuff and all the blood and all the kind of weird, you know, in their, her mind, weird stuff of Christianity. Uh, she wanted one that's a little more liberal, a little more, more, more positive. Like, let's, you know, talk positively about each other and uh, let's, let's try to be better people. She wanted the good place where all these really good people come together, you know. 
And what she found was, um, I'll, I'll read a quote. She said this, people want love to be unicorns and rainbows. And so then you send Jesus and people say, wow, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. Love isn't hearts and bows. It's very controversial. So she, what she says is when you get Jesus, you get something very different from this kind of clean, nice um, idea of what we all want to be. She says, when, and then she found church and she said, then we have this whole talk and forgiveness in my church. And unfortunately, I think she found a good church. Uh, then we had this whole talk on forgiveness at my church. And the pastor said something that spoke to me. He said that in order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are. There has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. In all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's simply not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. And the truth is, in Christianity, that's true. That in order for God to forgive, something did have to die. And what we find in Christianity is that the blood on the floor is God's own. That he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for us. And our high priest is able to walk into the Holy of Holies, not the earthly tabernacle, but the one that it pointed to in heaven. Able to walk into the Holy of Holies because he is covered in atoning blood, his own blood. And we have a high priest that has walked into the very throne room of God in heaven, covered in his own blood and made atonement for us so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven. Later on in Hebrews, the author says in Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And he's making an allusion back to Genesis when Abel was murdered by Cain. And, and God says that Abel's blood cried out for the, from the ground for vengeance and justice. And he's saying Jesus' blood cries out, but it does not cry out for vengeance and justice because that has been satisfied. It cries out. That you are forgiven. As we close. I want to say the role of religion. What religion is all about. Is not making really good people. It's to declare. That sinners have been forgiven. And that your conscience. Can be cleansed. And as I've been watching the show. The Good Place. I can't help but notice. All of the striving. That Eleanor Shellstrup is undertaking. In order to become a good person. She has no peace. She has no enjoyment of the place at all because it's all about her trying to get better. It's all about her becoming a good person so that she can remain in the good place. Everything she's doing is trying to make up for her bad deeds in life. And at no point can she feel forgiveness or love. And I wonder what the show would be like if suddenly Jesus were to appear and approach her and say, Eleanor Shellstrup. I know everything there is to know about you. I know that you are not a good person and that you don't belong here. But I forgive you. Her striving in that moment would be over. Her efforts to improve herself would be over. Amazingly, she would probably maybe even begin to actually love other people around her. Not so that it makes her a good person, but purely because she has been loved. 
She wouldn't be haunted by past mistakes because she would have come face to face with God himself and walked away knowing that his love for her was not based on her good deeds or her good motives. In fact, it wasn't based on her at all. His love was based on the fact that he is the divine forgiver and that his son has paid the price. So what would change in your life today if you were to hear Jesus tell you, I know you, I know everything there is to know about you, and I love you, and I forgive you. Your debt has been paid in full, and there is nothing more to be done. You are covered in the atoning blood of Jesus. Pray with me. Father God, I ask that you would help each person in this room a little bit more today to trust, to trust that everything that needed to happen in our lives in order for us to be with you and us to be in the good place has already been finished. And it was finished 2000 years ago before we were ever even here. God, help us to trust that our sins, though they are many, And though they haunt us at times, that objectively in heaven, our sins have been forgiven and that you love us. In your name I pray. Amen.